I don't know if you heard, but my Lush Life Cocktail Tours of Soho just launched last week. Check out LushLifeCocktailTours.com for more information, but rest assured on each tour, you'll be introduced to some of the most famous bars and bartenders in London, all while sipping their celebrated cocktails and learning about Soho's drinking history. You can find tickets on the website LushLifeCocktailTours.com. Don't miss this sophisticated romp through Soho. Hope to see you there. Now let's get on with the show. Like many others who came before him, our guest today fell in love with Venice at first sight. Unlike many others, he brought Venice home with him in a big way. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. We're not talking a t-shirt or gondola-shaped ashtray. Food writer and restaurateur Russell Norman brought us Pulpo, the restaurant that inspired Cicchetti, and for our purposes here, the Aperol Spritz to London and the UK. I met up with Russell in the original Pulpo on Beak Street to hear how his first date with Venice developed into a long, long long-lasting relationship. I apologize now for all the background noise you'll hear. This is London during the day on a busy street. Just pretend every honk is made by a Vaporetto on the Grand Canal. I really feel like I'm talking to someone who has had a very similar experience with the city that Mm -hmm. I have. Yeah. I I read and heard that you went to Venice in the early 80s or 86, I think. 86, exactly. And I was there for the first time in 81. Mm -hmm. I went with my parents knowing full well what it was. Um, they had been to Venice. They loved it. They hadn't been back for about 20, 25 years. So I was going. I stayed at the Daniele. It was all very glamorous. We ate at fabulous restaurants. Can you tell me what your first experience yeah, it was? Yeah, it was very different. I was a student and I had an Interrail card. Um, and I, I was bumming around France, central France, the Loire Valley. Um, and things sort of didn't go according to plan. Um, with the girl that I was hanging out with in France. And I was corresponding at the time with my new friend, a guy called Richard, who I'd met at uh, college the year before. And Richard was staying in Venice with his girlfriend, uh, Nicole, and we um, we uh, corresponded. And when it was obvious that things weren't going to plan for me in France, he said, come to Venice, you'll love it. So I jumped on a, literally jumped on a train from Blois in the Loire Valley to Paris. And then from Paris to uh, Venice, accidentally jumped on a train that turned out to be the Orient Express. Uh, and my interrail ticket obviously didn't stretch to the Orient Express, but the, but the conductor on the train, when he discovered that I was there with a backpack, standing in the corridor smoking, because you could smoke in, in those days on, on trains and on public transport, um, he, um, he said, you're on the wrong train, but if you keep out of trouble, uh, I'll, uh, I'll sort of ignore it. it well, it's not like you were on the wrong train. <laughs> you were on the Orient, Orient Express. Express. <laughs> not every carriage on the Orient Express was the fancy. Oh, uh, all right. I don't. I thought it was all. So no, no. So there were there were some carriages which were second or third class, and so I was hanging out in the corridor of the second or third class po- uh, section of the Orient Express. <laughs> but it was a it was a long journey. It was a sort of seven hour yeah. journey from Paris, so, and I was standing in the corridor most of the way. But, but you couldn't wait to get there already. It was, yeah, it was it was hot. It was August. And when I arrived in Venice, I'd, I'd done no research at all because it was 
way before the days of the internet, way before the days of uh, Google and mobile phones. Uh, so it was all very analog. Uh, I, I got out of the station at Santa Lucia and... Um, Which is, of course, Mussolini building. Yeah, it's not the best very, entree no, into... But um, although once you come down those very wide steps, you're very, uh, you're, you're very firmly in Venice itself. So you're surrounded by water, you're surrounded by palaces on the other side of the Grand Canal. You didn't um, know that part, right? No, I didn't. You I, really didn't. No, I didn't. You, you just I knew it was a city in I Italy. It was a city. I had no idea that it was built on water, and I had no idea that um, you know that the buses were boats. And this was my first um, my first mistake when I arrived in Venice. Um, I had instructions to get on the number one bus. Right. Yes. Went back into the station and put a couple of lira into the phone and called Richard and said, "Dude, there are no buses. I can only see boats." And he said, "Dude, the." Boats are the buses, you idiot. And so I got on the number one Vaporetto to Giardini, which is right at the end of the Grand Canal, beyond the Grand Canal, actually, in, the, in St. Mark's Basin. So you're almost at, it, it, almost in the Adriatic when you're in, um, when you're in uh, Venice in the, in the Far East in Giardini. And I stayed there for three weeks in the middle of um, August. Um, and it was too hot and too crowded to go into the historic center. I think we went once or twice to have a look at the sites, but every other day we turned left and went to Lido. And Lido has a beautiful Adriatic coast. And so my first experience of Venice was a three week beach holiday. And so I, funny. I tell people now, they say, don't be ridiculous. You can't go to Venice on a beach holiday, but as you know, yes. you can. And it was lovely, but there was enough about the city in that first trip um, that got under my skin uh, for me to want to go back almost immediately. It's amazing because you pretty much had the worst date you mm. can have yep. with Venice, the yep. worst first date. Yeah, I agree. August, mm. no one's there, all yeah. the Venetians are out, but you wouldn't know that yet. Yeah. It's hot as hell. Yeah. It's, it's full of tourists. Mm. Literally, for you to fall in love yeah. on that worst well, first date. Well, I was lucky that I was staying in a, in a residential district in mm. Castello, East Castello. So I was right by the gardens, which is where the Biennale is right. held. But. Um, in August, you know, I wasn't aware that there was there was anything um, different about the city because it was my first experience. And so I was I was going to restaurants that were populated by locals, uh, and I was going to shops um, where they spoke Venetian and not much else. And I would go to the market um, stalls on Via Garibaldi to buy my fruit and veg, and we'd prepare meals in the little flats that Richard was sharing with his girlfriend. And so it was a it was a very um, authentic experience, even though it was August, um, because I was living like a local. Um, and without the historic center being the focus, as it is with most tourists, I was able to focus on um, a part of Venice, which it, it actually took me about 30 years to get back to. So my most recent book was me revisiting the region, the the, um, mm -hmm. the neighborhood that uh, that first inspired me and first got under my skin in 1986 in order to uh, discover that residential side of Venice and to get to grips with how residents cook for their families rather than you know how the, the chefs in the fancy restaurants cook for their tourist customers. So like us all, or as, as we who don't have the luck to live in Venice, yeah. We carry this love. Of course, I'm talking for you right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or all Venice lovers, we carry this love with us as we live our daily lives, yeah. and we continue to find other things to do. And we hope that they'll take us to Venice. Yeah. Um, you have found the one thing where you've, you've really carried Venice with mm. you, um, at least in your modern working career. Now, I want to go back to before that when you were just carrying it around with you, yeah. this love. Um, 
you were working in in London. Yep. Um, I know that you worked in the the North before. We'll yeah. touch on that for very a briefly. For we very don't have briefly. to touch on that. Oh, well, I was just wondering about the drink. If you remember the drinking culture, hold on. Okay. All right. Well, since we're talking yeah, yeah. about that, yeah. you worked in the North with miners. Yeah. Since we're talking about drinks, yeah. really here on this podcast, um, do you have any recollection of? Any drinking culture? That Absolutely, was I worked there in a then? pub as well before I was um, before I was uh, an arts officer for Easington District Council, uh-huh. which is the job you're referring to. I only did it for a year, but um, my job was was trying to engage uh, recently redundant uh, miners. Margaret Thatcher closed right. down all the coal pits overnight, pretty much, and so areas like Easington in East Durham went from 100% employment to 100% unemployment pretty much overnight because the the mines closed. And so there were communities of, um, of newly unemployed uh, men, mostly, who uh, were used to working. Um, and then the carpet had been pulled from under their feet. Um, mm-hmm. And the first thing they did, I suppose, is go to the pub. Right. And so the drinking culture in that part of um, in that part of northeast England was very much pints. And I use the words in the plural advisedly because the people would drink several. Uh, pints uh, of an evening Um, and it was always the same they would uh, drink bitter rather than lager Uh, so quite weak beer around about Mm three percent in the north they call it scotch which is very confusing to a southerner when somebody asks for a pint of scotch you think what the hell but they're talking about bitter so uh, a very easy to drink uh, weak uh, warm beer did you find Um, yourself getting to know the the folks who live there a little yes. bit more yeah, from, absolutely. from and, and I could well this this is the thing. I mean I, I got to know them and they got to know me. I mean I was I was the butt of many jokes to start with because I didn't like the local beer. It was you know it was warm and it was bitter and you know it you know sits very heavily on you if you're drinking several pints, you know, you really feel it. So um you know I drink I drink sh- sort of shorts or I drink half pints and they used to think that was hilarious that a oh, man sure. that a man was drinking half pints or a, or a man was drinking a glass of wine or or heaven forbid a Campari. I just sort of laughed out of town. Uh, come, come what? <laughs> you know, what? A lot of what? So a very different drinking culture. Um, but definitely I or I guess the pub itself yeah. was a place where people of the community came together. Well, if I can, I, if I can sort of make a comparison, we've been talking about Venice, and we're, we're now in the north of England. Yes, very, very different cultures, very different landscape, very different background and um, and and way of operating. However, the pubs in the north of England, which were then and probably still are social uh, hubs. Uh, they were melting pots of society. It's where people would go to gossip and to uh, to complain about their neighbours and to talk about football and politics. It's exactly the same as my experience many years after going to Venice for the first time in '86. It was very similar to my experience of the Bacari of Venice. Mm-hmm. So these are very small, stand-up only wine bars where guess what? You get all walks of society going in to have a drink and have a little nibble and gossip about the um, neighbours, slag off the mayor uh, and talk about politics and football. And so, you know, these these um, uh, melting pots of society exist all over the world. Of course. And, and those, you know, those um, grotty pubs in the north uh, east of England, um, grotty in the sense that, you know, 
they were never refurbished, the carpets were always sticky, you get the idea. But full of, you know, genuine members of community of the community and um, and genuine people who, you know, were talking about things that were important to them. It's exactly the same as the Bakary of Venice. Do you remember going oh, this is a long time ago, mm. but going into or having that first experience, going into your the first um, I guess Baccaro. Uh, oh, oh Baccaro. Yeah, well, I do, and I can tell you exactly, um, uh, exactly how it um, uh, it um, it played out. Uh, there was a period of many, many years where um, I would go to Venice. It was just around the time I was starting to get interested in food back in London, because even though I took my first job in a restaurant in the very late eighties, eighty nine, I think and ended up working at uh, Joe Allen. <clears throat> Even though um, I was working in food in London, I didn't really think about the food culture in Venice because I always assumed it was beyond uh, the constraints of my budget and purse. Um, I looked at the restaurants and thought, wow, they're really expensive, I can't afford that. Um, however, I noticed the bakery, I noticed these little backstreet wine bars, and they were always full of locals. And you could tell they were full of locals because there were no baseball caps, there were no backpacks, there were no people with maps. There were, you know, there were gondoliers and taxi drivers and uh, and you know people from the um, uh, from the civic centre in suits, and I was slightly intimidated, I have to say, because there was no printed menu. Uh, I could see that there was food inside, and but you know couldn't really work out how you ordered the food. My Italian was nowhere near good enough for me to have the confidence to go in and and ask, uh, you know, what, what the uh, what the um, mo was. And so, uh, at first, these places were intimidating and um, uh, outside the realms of my experience, so I stayed away. But they used to fascinate me, and I used to see people drinking what looked like a, a, a pint or, or, or thereabouts of, um, of, of iron brew or lucas this big orange drink. And I used to think, what the hell is it? What are they drinking? And it was only you know, many years later I realized it was Aperol, and I realized that the red one was Campari. Um, and when I plucked up the courage to go into Baccarat for the first time, it was it was a little bit nerve-wracking because I think I just about worked out the way it worked, just about worked out what I needed to do. So I went to the bar, pointed at a few snacks behind the bar, uh, due per favore, uh, si, uno per favore, grazie, e, uh, un bicchiere di uh, uh, vino bianco per favore, you know, very, So you went very, with the white wine yeah, first, yeah. right? Very, very clumsy pigeon Italian. Um, which I have to say hasn't improved much, um, but um, and you know once I'd managed to, to get over that threshold and managed to order my first glass of wine and my first few cicchetti in a bakery, there was no going back. I thought, wow, so this is how locals eat. It's completely different to my experience and the experience I imagined um, dining in Venice would be. And also, you know, I got change from uh, from you know from five My euros price. and it was incredible i thought gosh you can you can actually eat quite well you know excellent ingredients fresh from the market prepared uh, sympathetically with a nod to authenticity and to tradition um, for not very much money. Yeah, and so that was is, oh, oh my God, the Bacala Manticato is, is one of one I know of the we're things, talking about alcohol, yeah. but, <laughs> no, the but it's funny that you say that because, um, you know, the bakery that I know, like Al Arco yeah, and Domori yeah, right yeah. next to it, they are really, I remember we used to say, okay, if we we're telling friends to go, it's yeah. hidden behind the t-shirt shop mm. or the t-shirt stall. Mm. Behind, you know, they're hard to find. Yeah. 
they're not out there like because you know, they, Harry's they, Bar. They haven't been built for tourists. Right. They've been built for, and well, originally, if you think about the location of those two bakery you mentioned, mm. um, Alarco and uh, Domori, they're virtually next to the market. So these were places that were built for market traders mm. and also for ease of, um, of, of ingredients. You know, I still see Francesco Pinto, the guy who runs Alarco, uh, I see him every morning at around uh, 7 8 o'clock as the stallholders are setting up their um, their little stalls, selling fish and vegetables and so on. He's there every morning pointing out the fish that he's going to take back to Alarco to prepare for the cicchetti with, uh, with his son Matteo and his wife Anna. Um, and so the proximity to the market is important in that sense because you know you're getting incredibly fresh and incredibly authentic uh, produce, not just from the Adriatic, but sometimes and very often from the lagoon. Mm-hmm. You know, these, these are fish that, um, that are labeled Nostrani, ours, ours, local. You know, this is stuff that... And, and Francesco quite frequently will tell me, you see the sea bass? I say, yeah, that's beautiful. He said, no, no, this is Nostrani. This is from the lagoon. Branzino di Laguna. And I say, wow, that's incredible. And then he goes further. He will say, no, no, this was caught by Paolo. And he caught it, it line caught it in his boat about uh, 250 meters off the northeast tip of Murano. So he knows precisely where in the lagoon this particular fish was caught. I mean, this is micro provenance that you don't really, well, I don't find anywhere else because I'm not, I'm not as intimately familiar with anywhere else as I am with Venice. But that's one of the things I love about um, places like Alaco. Um, but it's also, if you, if you think back to the reason that these places opened where they opened, it's, um, you know, it's a facility for market traders, which is why Alarco keeps very weird opening hours. Opens at 7 and closes at 2.30 in the afternoon. And it frustrates the hell out of tourists who go there and say, it's always closed. Right. And I say, yeah, because you're going there like a tourist. You've got to go there like a local. Like a local. And you know, this is why, and it freaks some people out, this is why you see old men drinking a glass of red wine at 9 o'clock in the morning. Because they're they're on market hours, of course. You know they might be retired stallholders who are used to, uh, you know, finishing work at um, at noon and maybe having their first drink uh, an hour or two before. Well, before we get to Aperol, yeah. at Domori, when mm. I started drinking was Fragolino Bianco, yeah. and mm. these are wines that you just don't find anywhere else but there. You have to go yeah. there to have them. Yeah, you know, supposedly it's a. I don't know, legal, illegal. It's some kind of weird well, wine. It's, but it's, 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 it's wine that's too young. It's, so it's wine that's, um, that's, that hasn't gone through the entire process of being made into a finished product. So it's cloudy. Uh, the alcohol content is quite low. Uh, it's effervescent. There's a little bit of fizz on the tip of your tongue when you drink it, but it's wonderful. And, and most, one of the most delicious things absolutely. I've, I've and ever it's, had you, you'll never You'll never find it in a bottle because you, in Domori, you just have those massive tanks on the right. back counter and they fill up your glass like uh, like you're at a gas station. And I always think, if I bring an empty bottle, yeah. can I get it back I'm through? Sh- I'm, I'm sure. sure. I'm sure, yeah. Now, back to you. Yes. Um, I, I don't think very many people will know, unless they have done a lot of research on you, um, that your fir- pretty much one of your first jobs was as a flair bartender, yeah. Yeah. which I have to love sitting here in Polpo because I couldn't imagine the bartenders here. Well, let me know, qualify that. We- no, we don't do flair here. Flair. But, okay, so you've got to you've got to put it in, in the context of the eighties. Okay, so the, uh, the the movie cocktail had just come out. Of course, with Tom Cruise and. Um, I can't remember the other actor. Brian, Brian Brown. Brian Brown, the yes. South African actor, that's right, yeah. 
and it was uh, it was sort of top gun for, for bartenders. Really. Look, I've interviewed tons of bartenders who say that was their reason why they got into bartending. Well, I didn't. I went into I went into a restaurant, a chain restaurant in Common Garden called Old Orleans, and everyone dressed like they were in New Orleans no. at the turn of the century, last century, and. Um, the woman who interviewed me said, you'll be great. I'm going to train you as a, as a bartender uh, and you're going to be fantastic. I said, well, I've, I've, I've only ever pulled pints before in a bar. I don't know how to make cocktails. Don't worry, there's going to be loads of training. Um, so I was hired before she knew how bad I was. And this is this is important. Did to you understand. think that you were going to do flair? Like, oh, I'm going uh, to get great at flair. Uh, she told be me my what, job? she told me that that's what I was going to be trained in. And I oh, didn't okay. really think about it. And so You're when okay, uh, when the training session started and uh, it was 30% what goes in the drink and, and 70% how you make it, uh, uh, you know, I was completely terrible. I, I threw bottles, I dropped. It's not easy. Drunk, it's not at all. You've got to be an acrobat, yeah. a circus performer. So I was I was pretty appalling. And even though I'd gone through training, I was still dropping more bottles than I was I was catching and I was still breaking more glasses than I was washing and it was yeah it was a bit of a catastrophe but so I was I was put on dispense <laughs> hidden from the view Just of customers <laughs> well no we were making cocktails for the restaurant rather than for the bar so I wasn't uh, you know I wasn't there making uh, drinks in front of paying customers I was doing it just for the waiters who would then take the drinks to the table did you like the actual uh, process of creating a cocktail or making drinks yeah were you thinking I <laughs> I did I um I you know I I it, it was you know it was incredibly exciting because it was new um, and it was a busy restaurant as well so I think that was the thing I enjoyed more than anything was the you know the fast paced nature of working in a very busy restaurant um, um, working alongside other people that you know that were like-minded I suppose I've always said that restaurants um, are sort of um, uh, places where misfits come together um, I've never really known a sane restaurant worker they're all slightly unhinged in different ways but you know they, they, they create they create a really nice community and I really enjoyed that part of it. I don't think I was particularly enamored with the cocktail making. I think it was the environment, working in a restaurant, uh, being busy, uh, working under pressure. Uh, and I, re I really enjoyed that part of things. I think that was, the, um, that was the bug that I got. It wasn't specifically about the drinks I was making because as I think I've uh, established, I was pretty terrible. But um, the, the bug that I got was, you know, was working in a restaurant environment. And I was only there, I was only a flair cocktail bartender for two minutes, mm -hmm. and, then a, and then a dispense bartender, cocktail bartender for, you know, for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, every day at um, around four o'clock, the, um, the waiters from a restaurant in the basement right. of Old Orleans in Common Garden, and the restaurant was called Joanna, the waiters from that restaurant would come up for happy hour cocktails um, in their, you know, their sort of two hours off that they got between split shifts. And I got talking to those guys and um, they said, what are you doing here? You know, the money is much better downstairs. We've, we've got a vacancy for a waiter. Why don't you come down and uh, work at Joe Allen? So I did. I, I gave my notice in um, to the woman who hired me as the worst cocktail bartender in, uh, in Common Garden and started working as a waiter at Joe Allen. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that. Well, fast forward a little yeah. when you were working with, because you've opened a bunch of restaurants. Yeah. Uh, or you've worked with them like Zuma and yeah. Hicks, who have, you know, 
a great reputation for their drinks as well. Yeah. Did you have anything to do with that? Was that part of your um, remit to oversee the? The it was to menus, oversee, yeah. I mean, the... one of one of the first things I did at Zuma was um, was was hire um, a, a guy called Tony Conigliaro, and Tony had had a couple of jobs, I think, in central London, and uh, I interviewed him. He was, you know, very thoughtful, um, very cerebral sort of guy, but clearly a massive talent. Um, and he joined the team at Zuma as head bartender uh, with a with a creative remit. Um, yes, he wrote rotors and things like that, but you know he came up with these amazing cocktails, and uh, he was an incredible trainer as well. You know, he gave people a sense of uh, pride in what they were making. Um, so I can't take any credit really. I, I, all I did was, was hire the guy, and, well, uh, hey, and he, he did the rest. And he's now a bar legend, as I'm of sure course. you're aware. And went then to it takes. Uh Tony, did no, he? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't realize. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was. Um, yeah, he was consultant at Zuma even after he left as, uh, as head bartender. And now, of course, he does his own things very well indeed. So let's get to your restaurants yeah. and your bar menus. Mm. Um, I have to say, I love that in your wonderful recipe book, Polpo, really mm. the first thing you mentioned before any food, except for a bowl of spaghetti and pizza, is mm. a luminous orange drink yeah. in one hand, yeah, yeah. which made me like, as the bar girl, yeah. um, you know, this orange thing, which mm. actually, all the times I went to Venice, I was so enamored with the Bellini mm. that I pretty much didn't know that this was an that this existed. This whole spritz craze, mm. and you know, that's what's wonderful about Venice. You learn something every day. Every time you go, you learn something new. When you were creating or thinking about starting Polpo, the restaurant, yeah, um, I guess tell me about you know. You're thinking of the bar menu. You know, you have, you know, you're going to serve chiquette. Mm. Obviously, you're going to have a spritz because this is something that you're going to have. What about the other cocktails that you have on the menu? You know, how did you pick and choose and talk through the, different, the different spritzes that you actually have on the menu? The big difference between um, Italian tastes and British tastes is bitterness. So in Italy, uh, the the bitter flavour that you find in many of their aperitifs, aperitivi, and the bitter flavour that you find in a lot of their hero vegetables as well, like uh, radicchio, for example, or uh, chicory, or um, uh, castelfranco, or puntarelli, or chicoria, all of these wonderful brassicas and winter vegetables have that same quality of bitterness. And yet that is almost entirely absent from British palates. And so when I opened Polpo, I knew that I needed to introduce uh, my audience. And by my audience, I mean the people that live and work and play in Soho, which was the audience for the original Polpo, which is where we're now sitting. Uh, I knew I needed to introduce them to that Italian aesthetic uh, of bitterness. And of course, I was going to do it in terms of the dishes I was serving, but I wanted to do it at the bar as well. And so as well as Campari spritz and Aperol spritz, the two uh, most popular drinks in Venice, I suppose, and uh, two drinks which deliver that lovely, um, that lovely bitterness. Um, I also went to my suppliers and said, okay, can you, can you get me China? Can you get me Select? Can you get me, um, uh, and I gave them a long list of other um, bitters that I'd experienced and enjoyed and tasted in, uh, in Venice. Um, and 
the supply route was very rusty at the time. You know, I had a real struggle to get Aperol, can you believe, in 2009. And I made contact with the company and um, said, I'm opening a Phoenician restaurant and I want to make it my signature cocktail. And I said, great, we've got a, uh, we've got a, a, a company called, um, I can't remember the, uh, the uh -huh. distributor, a company called such and such brands who, um, who distribute it. You need to get in touch with those guys. And I did, and you know, I think there were maybe three or four cases of Aperol That's in the crazy. entire UK at the time. And I said, I'll take them all. And so they started to up their uh, quantities in order to supply me. And I think it was, it was about 2010, we'd been open here for a year. And the guy from Grupo Campari and uh, the guy responsible for Aperol came down one day and said, you do realize that this one restaurant here in Big Street uses more Aperol than the rest of the country put together. And I said, wow, okay, that's great. I didn't realize that. Um, and it was around about the time that, um, uh, that um, I suppose people were getting into Prosecco. There was a little sort of zeitgeist around these uh, slightly exotic um, drinks from Italy that were easy to pronounce. I think it happened in the 80s with Pinot Grigio, a wine that sounded exotic and was very easy to pronounce and people felt good about ordering. Same thing happened with Prosecco around about the same time in the, uh, in the noughts. And then after we'd popularized um, Aperol here, the same zeitgeisty thing happened. I think the, the guys at Aperol saw that there was a taste for it and we were proving it in this one little shop. Uh, and so they started a marketing campaign which got it into a few other bars. And now we sit here in 2019 and you can go to the, uh, the most out of the way pub in the most rural part of uh, England or Scotland or Wales and find Aperol being sold and ordered and enjoyed. A mere 10 years on. So for me, it was, yeah, it was important to have that drink and have those bitter flavors as part of the bar offer. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just, it's just interesting to, to see how far we've moved on. You remember earlier when I was talking about mm -hmm. the, the difference between British tastes and uh, Italian tastes, how far we've moved on and how, how much we've embraced that bitterness. Absolutely. I mean, I really believe that you introduced me to the Aperol, mm. even though I've been going to Venice for so long. Yeah. And Chiquette, yeah. which I didn't even know it had a name mm. until you. Yeah, yeah. And now, you know, there are places, there are restaurants called Chiquette, and yeah. it really was because of you. Yeah. Now, how come everyone gets the Aperol spritz wrong, though, and they serve it with a slice of orange? Every well. time I ask someone, mm. wherever I'm ordering it, could you put an olive in it? Yeah. They're like, what are you talking about? But, You're okay. the craziest person. <laughs> the thing is, they all think that we're wrong. Uh, yes, I, I know. Well, yeah, I've yeah. had battles with people. Yeah, yeah I, me too. Me too. And, you know, I, I sort of give in and say, you want orange? That's fine. You don't want the olive? That's fine. But, you know, I say in the Pulper book, uh, that we serve our spritz in the, in the way that I first enjoyed spritz in Venice at a place called um, uh, Cafe Rosso in Campo Santa Margarita. Mm -hmm. So yes, a big slug of, uh, of a bitter like Campari or Aperol. Uh, however, no Prosecco. A Venetian spritz is made with still wine and then a, a, a brief shot of very fizzy water, which they have mm -hmm. under pressure uh, at the bar in a gun. Um, and then always a lemon slice and always an olive. Um, whether it's Campari or Aperol. Because it's not supposed to be sweet. No, Somehow exactly. we've sweetened it now, the British. Yeah. But yes, if you serve again. as we do, we, we, so we serve our Aperol spritz with still wine, and people tell me I'm wrong. Uh, we serve our Aperol spritz and Campari spritz with an olive and a slice of lemon, and people tell me I'm wrong. We, we serve it in a tumbler rather than a stemmed wine glass, mm. and people tell me I'm wrong in that sense. But, I love that know. people keep telling you they're sitting in your restaurant. Oh, it's okay. Shouldn't they assume that you well, are I writing? Think, I know, I think people, you know, if they've had something um, 
19 times out of 20 a certain way, mm -hmm. and then they get one time out of 20 served it the way I serve it, you can see why they assume that, uh, that I'm, I'm doing it wrong, because everybody else does it the other way. Now, on the menu, you also have, uh, you know, it's not just, um, it's just not spritzes, but you have a Negroni, the Asian yeah. New York sour, yeah. a, um, bourbon. So these, and yeah, these were, mix. these were, uh, you know, these were also essential um, items for for my uh, drinks menu because once again they satisfy the bitter criteria that I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. Um, but also, you know, something like a Negroni is a, is an absolute classic Italian cocktail. Um, it's a marriage of three ingredients that you know you do not mess with. You know, the proportions are one third, one third, one third, and if you fiddle around with those proportions, it's not a Negroni, or it starts to taste a bit weird. Uh, so it's always important to have those drinks and have those classics. But also, it's you know it's a connection with an era which I, I sort of love. You know, there's that 1920s, 1930s romantic. Uh, period in in Venice where you have Hemingway hanging out in Harris Bar and getting absolutely catatonic every day, telling his um, his editor that he's discovered this drink which is wonderful because it contains a gin, but it also contains a bitter which um, counteracts the bad uh, effects of the gin. I mean, it's absolute fantasy, but right, the health, like, yeah, a healthy gin cocktail. Absolutely. Or that you know that one alcohol can somehow cancel out another, but it's yeah, it's, it's fun. And in addition to the classics, I also wanted something that um, you know that we could say was ours. And so one of the bitters I haven't mentioned, um, or I think I did it in, in passing, is china. No. Now china is uh, made with artichokes. It's super bitter. It's it's a muddy color, a little bit like the sort of um, the, the um, green slime, the, the slimy parts of the lagoon, I <laughs> That's guess. What I think. Um, but you find in Venice, particularly these days, you find china is now being uh, ordered uh, and is now the um, bitter of choice amongst the new generation of Venetians who used to laugh about it because it's what their grandparents mm. would order. But because there's so much counterfeit Aperol and Campari in Italy, and also because it's been so um, uh, ubiquitously embraced by the rest of the planet, everybody now knows what an Aperol spritz is. You know, one of my Venetian friends was telling me he was in Delhi, <laughs> in India, and uh, saw a massive sign for Aperol and saw you know, locals drinking Aperol spritzes. Who would have thought it? Um, so they sort of turned their back on um, on the ubiquity of mm -hmm. Aperol in particular, and they've 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 now chosen um, China as their bitter of choice in a spritz. So most Venetians now drink China spritz. Yes, I was I was served one okay. at a hotel, and they called it the Lagoon Spritz. Oh really? How interesting! I love. So I wanted China as an ingredient for a cocktail. So I tasked one of my early uh, bartenders with coming up with a cocktail that used that used China because it was a favorite of mine. And he came up with a drink which he called the China Gin Fizz. So China, gin, little lemon juice, uh, a slice of cucumber, ice, uh, I think a little dash of Angostura, and then topped up with Prosecco and stirred. And it's, um, it's a really great combination of those lovely bitter flavors that you get with gin and China. But the bit of fizz and sweetness that comes with the um, Prosecco makes it a little bit more palatable. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, I think it's one of our most popular cocktails and it's been on the menu for around about nine years. It sounds great. Mm. Now, I just want to talk yeah. one quick word about okay. your Venice book. Where you lived in Venice for a year. Yes. And the cocktails that are in this book yeah. are not your, what I think of mm. as the usual 
of Venetian cocktails, yeah. which you've already put in your yeah. book anyway. Exactly. The first one being the espresso martini. Yeah. Were you having a lot of these in Venice? Only in one place, and I think I mentioned the place. Um, it's now closed to, um, to non-residents of the hotel, unfortunately. But it was a wonderful rooftop bar at the um, uh, Hotel Comedia next to um, uh, the Goldoni Theatre. So very close to Rialto Bridge, just you know, maybe maybe a uh, hundred steps from Rialto Bridge. And I was taken there by one of my um, favorite Venetians, a very grumpy uh, guy called uh, Giovanni Deste, who runs a bar called Ayrustegi. Um, uh, mm-hmm. uh, very difficult to find and very difficult to get out of once you're in there um, because he's such a great host. And one night after service, he said, come with me, we're gonna go somewhere for a uh, espresso martini. I said, are you kidding? Espresso martini in, in Venice? Said, yeah, absolutely. He said, but you know, you're going to be with uh, residents, not with tourists. And so we went to this rooftop bar. It was wonderful. You know, it was, it was on the roof of, uh, of a hotel in the middle of the most built up part of the historic center of Venice, enjoying um, espresso martinis with Giovanni. So because when I was living there, I would occasionally hang out with Giovanni. I, I thought I wanted to put that in there, even though it's not something you associate with Venice normally. Well, the coffee is. Of course. <laughs> and and, and hidden, hidden and <laughs> hidden rooftop bars. Yeah, yeah. Those kind of hidden exactly. special yeah. spots. Um, now, since you've mentioned the, the chin art, um, gin fizz, mm. I'm desperate for one. Okay. Will you make me one at the Absolutely. bar now? Absolutely. Let's let's do that. Let's um let's have a a chino gin fizz. He heard us. All Thanks, right, Raf. Cool. Yeah. And as Raf is making it, um, we can yeah we can watch the the progress of this drink. So I think I think the the bar guy's name. You won't mind me mentioning him. Uh, the bartender um, that I that I talked about who invented this was uh, called Ajax. And he now lives in New How York. How romantic. Yeah, what a great name. He now lives in New Orleans and uh, New York. Um, but he was my, I think he was 19 years old uh, when he was the bar manager here. I run off his feet because we were so busy every night. But uh, somehow, one quiet afternoon, got a chance to come up with this. And he said, Russell, try this. And I just remember trying it thinking, that's yeah, great. It's a, hey, I like Jenar. So there's a little bit of uh, gom syrup as well, which uh-huh. is which is uh, one of those wonderful ingredients that just brings everything together. It's a little bit like um, in uh, in Italian cooking, in Italian regional cooking. Whenever you see a recipe, or whenever you talk to uh, a home cook about how their sauce is so beautiful with their pasta, how do they manage to incorporate it so well? Um, it's because they add a little bit of the pasta cooking water to the sauce brings everything together in, a, in the same way that gom syrup does in a cocktail. But I can't wait to have this. I can't wait for you to try it. Thanks so much to Russell for sitting down for a chat on a very busy work day. It was great to have a chance to reminisce about Venice. Now it's time for our cocktail of the week. Or should I say in Italian, our bibita della settimana. You could fight me and say that the April Spritz is not a classic cocktail, and I promised it would be all classic cocktails this season. Well, I'm fighting back to say that yes, it is. April was invented in 1919 by the Barbieri brothers, and the Spritz is ages old. During the time when the Austrians owned Venice in the 1800s, 
the Austrian soldiers found the wines a little too alcoholic and added in a bit of water. Thus, the spritz was born. Fast forward to the 1950s when the Italians added Aperol to their spritz, and now it's everywhere and so easy to make. So I bring you again the Aperol spritz. Add three ounces of Prosecco, two ounces of Aperol, and one ounce of soda into a wine glass with ice and stir. Garnish with an olive if you want it really Venetian, and we're talking classic here. I would be remiss if I didn't share the recipe for the Chinar Gin Fizz that Russell and I enjoyed during our chat. And you can find that recipe, the Aperol Spritz, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. Aperol gets all the press, but if you want to taste the original spritz of Venice, you need to try the select spritz. This time it was the two Venetian Pilla brothers who created Select in 1920, using juniper and rhubarb plus 28 more botanicals to create their homegrown spirit. It's the same recipe as the Aperol spritz, but substitute the Select for the Aperol, and always, always garnish with a green olive. If you live for Lush Life, would you consider supporting us by buying us a coffee? Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash lushlife and you can donate once or monthly to make sure we are still here every Tuesday. Also, you know how much I love to talk about cocktails and we can all be talking together on the flick.group slash lushlife app. It's free to join and works on Android and iOS devices. Plus, you can listen to the latest episodes right there if you want to catch up. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Okay, the second part was mine. Have you ever heard the term small beer, meaning an unimportant thing? I hadn't until I met with the owner of small beer here in London. Now the definition is sure to get rewritten. Are you totally confused? Well, check back next week to learn what I'm talking about. Until next time, bottoms up.